Okay, guys, very welcome back to the show, and I have a very, very special guest on the show today, a man that I've been trying to get on the show for quite a while to talk about his journey in the, the movie and the TV world from such a young age to where he is now. Mr. Clint Howard, thank you for joining me today, man. Well, I really, really thank you, Maurice. It's, uh, you know, you seem like a really, really pleasant fellow, and I think this is going to be a pretty good conversation. Excellent. Yeah, what what I describe these conversations is just two guys just sitting down in the sitting room, very formal, just having a little conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Normally, normally I ask people like, "How did you decide that you wanted to get into the movie and TV world?" But from looking at your story, it doesn't look like it was a decision for you. It looks like it may have been made because you got into it so young. Do you have any memories about, or even give people background on how you came into the life? even at two years old. Well, as a little tyke, yes, I have no, no memories myself. I, I was yeah. acting before I really kind of knew what I was doing. I started when I was two, two and a half, more like it. Um, yeah. And it, it was on the Andy Griffith show. You know, my brother Ron was playing Opie on the Andy Griffith show and I was being taken down to the set regularly kind of to be babysat because mom would, mom would look after me. And then when normally dad, my dad, Rance Howard, who's a wonderful, wonderful, he's passed away. He's a wonderful man. Uh, he was sort of our acting mentors and our, he was our dad. He was with us on the set the majority of the time, but once in a while when my dad would get an acting job or some other business that he would have to go away, mom would go down and, and, and take care of Ron. And I came along onto the set of the Andy Griffith show and just the, the production people, they took a look at me, specifically a director named Bob Sweeney. He, he, he sort of recognized, he invented this bit in his head. He thought it would be funny. And he asked my parents if, if they could, would put me into, into the show. And they agreed because Ron had done it successfully. Ron had become a child actor for three or four years by the time I came along. So anyway, I started working on that show and then, once people realized I had an aptitude to be an actor, I was three, four, five years old. I had an agent and I started getting jobs. Yeah. Um, how does it feel like, how did it feel from what you can remember being a child actor? And then you see a lot of people in Hollywood, you see a lot of examples of when people get into the business so early that they fall into problems later in life, whether that be with drugs or alcohol or things like that. How did you maintain the lifestyle of being in the film business to where you are now, like? Well, I personally always enjoyed it. I mean, I just, mm. you know, listen, we, we come from a family of, of people in the entertainment business. My mom and dad, uh, Rance and Gene Howard, uh, they, they were in the business long before Ron and I came along. Uh, they loved the business. They loved the spirit of the business. They understood it. They were both from the Midwestern part of the United States. They were both, you know, from Oklahoma. And they had this really salt of the earth, common sense approach to things. And they were not, neither one of them were intoxicated by the entertainment business at all. So for them, it was a wonderful opportunity to earn a living and have good adventures and, and be around very interesting people. And that attitude just sort of, you know, rubbed off on me by osmosis. I developed that attitude. I always enjoyed I always enjoyed being an actor. I enjoyed the game that it was, you know, playing cowboys and Indians with just absolutely superior toys. You know, I mean, listen, I, I remember doing jobs as a kid when I was do a Western 
and get to dress up in that old Western motif and, and be around the Cowboys. And I, it was what a blast who wouldn't want to do it, you know? And then a little bit later on, I was introduced to animals in the world of, of entertainment. You know, I was in a television series called gentle men where I was the, the star of the show with a 650 pound black bear. So for a little while, for a couple of years in America and then throughout syndication and everything, I was the little kid pulling on the bear's chain, you know, and I had a wonderful time down in Florida working on Gentle Ben. And that started when I was, you know, seven years old, seven, eight, nine years old. Uh, by that point, I'd already had some experience in the business, you know, and I understood it. And, and my dad was right there with me when I didn't understand something. He would teach me and guide me. Uh, and it was, you know, like. All the jobs I had were, were very, very pleasurable. I'll tell you what, I didn't have any question that, that I didn't want to be, you know, or that I wanted to be an actor, um, you know, into my teenage years. It wasn't those teenage years when, when all of a sudden, you know, the social life at school was important and playing sports was important and, you know, maybe grabbing that that three-day job on that Western wasn't that important if it was going to take me off the baseball team or, you know, especially in high school. In fact, in high school, I did not work much. And, and because I was, first of all, I was, I was a journalist and I was working on the school newspaper uh, since I was a sophomore and I enjoyed doing that. And I enjoyed playing on the baseball team. I was a, I was a three-year participant in, in a two-year varsity letterman at Burroughs. So that was, which was my high school. So during that time, no, my focus was on being Clint Howard, the teenager, not necessarily Clint Howard, the actor. Yeah. You, you appeared obviously in a massive iconic franchise in 1966, which was Star Trek. Um, when you look back on that, how proud are you to be involved in like into, in a franchise like that, looking back on it? Oh boy, Maurice, um, you know, yes, proud, satisfied, you know, I get it and I'm very honored, you know, I didn't have a lot to do with it. You know, I was, I was six years old and, you know, apparently my agent sent my dad a a phone, sent him a phone call and said, listen, they want to, they want to test your son to play a part in this new science fiction show. Star Trek had, was barely on the radar. I only knew that it was a science fiction show. You know, Lost in Space was a show that preceded Star Trek as far as the world out there in space. So, you know, I was fascinated by it. And then I heard that I was going to play a 500-year-old alien. I thought that was really cool. Um, But as far as that, I had no idea what the Star Trek legacy was going to be, you know. And in fact, in fact, Maurice, I, you know, I have a little story about that legacy and I really want to share it. Because I didn't appreciate, I didn't appreciate my involvement in the Star Trek franchise when I was younger. And it wasn't until I probably hit 45 or 50 years old that I fully understand that, you know, the Star Trek thing was a lot bigger than I had ever imagined. And and these fans were not just geeks. They were really true, sort of smart, thoughtful people that embraced the original programming, the role that I played, and they were, people were very tickled that a child my age could 
could participate in creating entertainment like that episode from Star Trek, the Corbin might maneuver, you know? Um, but anyway, I, listen, when I was in my twenties and my thirties, I, you know, ah, you know, it was great to be on Star Trek, but come on, I'm an, I'm an, I'm an adult actor. I want to do adult things. And that was when I was a kid, in fact, and I wrote about this, you know, my brother and I wrote a book called the boys, a memoir of Hollywood and family. I'm not sure if it got a release worldwide, but it certainly is available on the internet through Barnes and Noble and the various, the various places that sell books. Um, but Ron and I wrote a book about our childhood experiences and throughout our careers, starting when I was little. And of course, Ron started when he was three years old. Um, but there, there's, a, there's a, a chapter in the book about my experiences working on Star Trek. And my memories included my perception of what legacy was, because when I was about 17 years old, I was I had a chance to audition for the role of Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. Wow. It was way before there was videotape. If they wanted to see if an actor might be right, the only way they could see would be as if they called him in for an audition. And 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, they were auditioning hundreds of actors, maybe not hundreds, but a lot of actors. And when I went in one particular day, there must have been 30 or 40 actors out there in this big waiting area outside at 20th Century Fox Studios. And, and I remember Mark Hamill was like behind me. Mark was a little, might be a year older than me, but we used to kind of audition together various projects. He was a kid actor. Um, so I saw Mark Hamill and I was getting ready to go in and audition for this cool Star Wars movie. Didn't know much about it. I was playing this character and I was I learned my lines and I was going to go in and audition and I went into the room and the room Francis Coppola was sitting in the room he happened to be he's a confidant of George Lucas's and I George or Francis Francis had already made his mark in the world and I, I was blown away that Francis Coppola's in the room and I looked around and there was another guy that I recognized a guy named Gino Havens and then another guy, a, a, a guy that happened to be a, a casting associate on the Andy Griffith show, but a guy that was a, a confidant of George Lucas, a guy named Fred Roos, he was in this room. Now, I didn't see George at the time. And the reason why I know these, this cast of characters is my brother Ron had been in American Graffiti. So I kind of knew about George and I knew about the way they did graffiti and it was really exciting. Uh, and I was, you know, that made even going on this audition more exciting for me. Um, I, 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 I'm in the room and I don't see George. George is actually turned around in a big leather chair. And when I come into the room after a beat, he swings around and he looks at me and he goes, Commander Baylock, Corbamite maneuver. And in my head, I'm going, George, get an effing life. That was <laughs> old science fiction television show that you're you know and here's the real thing here's the personal ego bruise he's bringing up something i did when i was a baby and when i was 17 years old i was trying to get an adult role i was trying to get an adult job i was getting ready to step out into the adult world and here is this man that i respected in a room with francis coppola and the first thing that the director says is he, he, he does a throwback of me when I was an it baby, you know? And so obviously I didn't get the role. I wasn't bitter. I, in, in past years, I've mentioned it to George 
what happened. He, he doesn't have any memories of those casting sessions, really. I mean, you know, he saw hundreds of people. Um, but it, it, you know, what caught his eye was that I participated on Star Trek. And when I hit about 45 or 50 years old, I realized that that scenario of people looking me in the eye and going, my God, you were Commander Baylock in the Corbomite Maneuver. I mean, Jesus, it means something to them. And it clicked for me that, my God, you know, I'm, I should be friggin' grateful. Because if I'm not, it makes me come off like a real a-hole. And I'm not an a-hole. I'm, very, I'm a very grateful, yeah. humble person. And, and, you know, and what it's led to has been fantastic. Because I get to have conversations about it now. I get to appreciate it. I get to ask these people questions. You know, um, I, I've gone to Star Trek conventions and had many, many doctors. People hand me their business card and they're friggin, they got doctorates, you know, and they, they're mission leaders at NASA, flight directors at NASA, scientists at NASA. I mean, the Star Trek, the, the fandom at Star Trek is, is, you know, pretty high level. Very diverse, very diverse, I'd imagine. Yeah. 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 So anyway, and I've been, I've been in, I've been, I probably, you're going to ask this question or at least talk about it. I've been in Star Trek. I was in Deep Space Nine. Um, I was in Enterprise. I was in Discovery. And there's a new, there's a new series called Strange New Worlds that at this point, you know, unless I got conked in the head and I don't know what I'm talking about, I worked on the show. So coming up in, in, in a brief time, I will have been in, what is that? My fifth, my fifth Star Trek incarnation. And my God, what a feather. I mean, uh, you know, I'll take it. In fact, yeah, I'm going were... to throw my shoulder out, patting myself on the back. <laughs> you remind you remind me kind of what you said there. I I was I had Tony Moran on my podcast, and he was in the original Halloween '78. Now he played a very small role in it. He played when Michael Myers was unmasked, and he kind of told me the same thing. You know that why would people want me for a convention? I was on screen for maybe two or three seconds, but that's the thing with the the fans of these franchises, like Halloween, like Star Trek, like the convention world is. It's a crazy world, but it's a great hidden gem for people that don't know what it is. Oh, yeah. Listen, science fiction, the conventions are are really interesting. You know, the horror conventions, you know, are are fascinating to me. I've been around long enough to really see the, the horror convention evolve into something that it wasn't 25 years ago. Um, you know, it, so I'm I'm. Uh, it's very interesting because, you know, of course, after after my experiences as a child, getting to do a lot of, you know, wonderful work with Henry Fonda and, and, and you know, Jack Elam and Ben Johnson and Maureen O'Hara and getting to work, of course, you know, with my brother a lot. All of a sudden then, because I'm a working actor, I fell into some pretty choice horror movies, not by design, just they were calling for auditions and I would go down and audition for Evil Speak for ice cream man for ticks these are all jobs people remember me as i this icon, iconic figure in these horror movies and they're jobs i just simply auditioned for you know and uh the the you know the interesting thing about about evil speak that was one of the first jobs i did as an adult 
as a guy on my own. I was 19 years old and I'd worked a few times, but never had the lead role in a movie. And getting the lead in Evil Speak was a big deal for me. And getting to do, you know, to play Stanley Cooper Smith, you know, was I it was it was something that I'm I'm still very proud of, you know. Thought it was a pretty interesting movie. I know in the UK it was labeled a video nasty for years, and I found that to be kind of to be part of a video nasty. That makes me feel so dirty. <laughs> <laughs> what was it banned in the UK? I guess so. They, it was labeled wow. a video nasty, whatever that means. I, you know, I never I, even I, heard that term, but I, I yeah, assume it's probably some kind it, of ban. It was, um, you know, Evil Speak kind of gave me a title to be introduced into the horror world. And then, of course, a movie that I did a few years later, I'm actually in the in the early 90s called Ice Cream Man, yes. um, really cemented my place in the horror world as as a guy that can, you know, carry the carry the goods, carry the horror. Uh, and it was that was a fun, fun experience to work on. And And boy, you know, as far as horror fans connecting with me at horror conventions, um, it's a blast to have people, multi-generational people now come up to me having, having, you know, they'll tell me exactly where, where they were when they saw the ice cream man for the first time. Um, my wife and I, Kat, is we, we go to about a half a dozen conventions every year and we have a great time and it, we always, we always get a hoot. We get a hoot and people come up and tell us ice cream man stories. This last horror convention that we went to, my cat and I were sitting there at the table and this couple came up and they started telling me this story, how they watched ice cream man on their wedding night. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, I hope you didn't get through it all the way to the finish. And they went, Oh no, no, we didn't. But to think that they would queue up ice cream man on the, the most sacred night of their, of, of, of their lives. It says something about the movie, which I think people ought to investigate it. And as a matter of fact, about ice cream, man, um, the original filmmaker, Norman Epstein, Norman Epstein and I had remained friends over the years. And we finally, about a year ago, we finally decided we threw down the gauntlet with each other and said, we are going to create another ice cream man. We're going we're gonna to make a movie where I'm going to play an ice cream man. And, and it's not a sequel. It's not a sequel to the original. The only thing is I'm, play, I'm, I'm getting hired to play an ice cream man, a 60-year-old ice cream man who's kind of bitter. And one in, Norman and I, one of our goals in the movie, first of all, we want to fulfill the genre. We want to give the fans what they want. But we also want to sort of see to, to show the pathos of well, what makes a guy put body parts in the ice cream? What possible scenario, what possible scenario could we invent that would make it okay so the audience will cheer when he is dropping body parts in the ice cream? And listen, we're, Norman and I are having a blast. And also my wife, Kat, she's one of the producers on it. And we, we've done table readings of the script. And the process, sometimes it slows down a little bit. Sometimes it speeds up. You know, we kind of, we have partial funding. We are trying to get the material just right so we can go ahead and kick this thing in the ass, uh, hopefully sometime later on this year. Excellent. That's great news because I know like that's, that movie in particular has a lot of hardcore fans like you, like you described <laughs> the couple at their wedding, for example. 
it, it, it's been, you know what? And one thing, let me just bring this up about horror fans. They've gotten, they've gotten better over the years. I'll tell you, when I first started going to horror conventions, it was pretty sketchy. It was, it was, it was not necessarily all that friendly, especially by the time Sunday afternoon came along. A lot of these people started, you know, sobering up or unwinding, <laughs> so to speak, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of people that would come to the table Saturday morning and they'd be kind of like this, you know, and they, they wouldn't have any money in their pocket. They would have spent it all. I mean, just, it was just more of a hard, more of a hardcore crowd. And just over the years, uh, you know, even the guy, even people that are devotees of Rob Zombie's movies, I mean, Rob Zombie makes pretty hardcore freaking movies, man. I mean, how his version of Halloween was loud and were in your face. And his trilogy of movies, including the one one that I worked on, Three from Hell, it's hard. These are hard movies with, you know, adult frigging concepts, you know. But the people that come up, they're just fans, and they they're not weird. They're they're they 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 have they actually in in, in an odd sort of a way they've kind of got their own kind of culture now, you know. And well, we love going to them, you know. And they listen. They they. They appreciate me. And, you know, I'm now, listen, I don't take that for granted, Maurice, that, that, you know, when you have people appreciate you, it's like, well, friggin' good, good. Thank you. I means my work has paid off over the years. And, 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 you know, getting back a little bit about to the acting thing, you know, one of the, in my mind, the big negative about being an actor is the general insecurity of it. Because I don't care who you are, when the phone doesn't ring, when those jobs don't happen, if you, if you go six months of your life without employment, wow, it just changes the way you think. It just, it, it rubs you, it rubs you, you know? Now, later on in my life, I can kind of, you know, I realize statistically I'm okay and I'm gonna make it and everything. But when you're younger, Friggin, you know, the insecurity of that unemployment is is poor. You know, it's really nasty. So that was as, as far as the business affording me an opportunity to do all sorts of wonderful things and 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 experience wonderful things. The one thing that I've that I did experience in the course of my lifetime is that insecurity. Yeah, and I can I can totally understand that and. You can tell that, you know, it's 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 a tough world when you are waiting for that phone to ring as well. And I can only imagine how how it is these days with the amount of actors and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it's a very oh, very key point. I, I I I certainly I certainly would not want to dive into the business at this point in, in the way things are. I just you know I try to find something else to do, but that's not the case. And also another thing, and this is something that I'm carrying on in the tradition of my dad is that, you know, if there are young people, young people are, are, they come up to me and they're really interested about the business and they really would like to be entertainers and they'd like to somehow get into the entertainment business. Um, you know, I just be honest with them. It's hard. You got to do some, you got to make some tough decisions, you know, however, never put a wet blanket over somebody's dreams, because if it if it was easy, then everybody would do it. You know, you got to kind of say to yourself, well, yeah, the business is friggin tough. Well, I'm, I'm tough, too. 
I'm, I'm, I'm tough. I'm going to, I'm, I'm hanging in there, you know? So, you know, but I, listen, I do tell young people in their late teens and early twenties when they really come up to me and in a cerebral way, they want to ask me questions about breaking into the business. I would tell them, listen, if it is your life's passion, if it, if it is your life's passion to somehow entertain people, God bless you. And the world needs entertainment. That's one thing that we've all learned out of all the depressions, no matter what, the entertainment business survives and even thrives in bad times. You know, but but you have to learn, you gotta learn to 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 be frugal. And another thing that you have to also understand is it is probably a 10-year process to determining whether you can find a place in the business. It's yeah. a, I, I, I've had people, I've had people out here in Southern California, they come up to me and they say, Oh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be in the movie business. I've been out here for three weeks and I'm going to stay another three weeks. And I, <laughs> and I'm just going, my God, man, <laughs> you know, in, in six weeks, you're not even going to learn where the toilets are in three yeah. years, in, in three years of hardcore investment in this business, you're barely going to have any networking skills. You're barely going to know how to, how to massage contacts and make, and make things happen in that way. You know, it's, it's Jesus, you got to give yourself, you know, hopefully in five or six years, there'll be, you can have some progress to show, but really I would say a decade after a decade, if you're still spinning your wheels, well then maybe, maybe, you know, you should find some place to go sell shoes. (laughs) <laughs> any memories of working on the the water boy another iconic movie with mr sandler whilst adam is awesome adam sandler is a friggin one dandy dandy human being he works hard he's funny he doesn't crave attention he's a great team guy he's a great guy to be at the tip of the spear you just everybody rallies around him and working on the water boy i was really impressed i only worked on that movie like three days it's amazing. They flew me from Los Angeles down to Florida to Orlando and they had all of my stuff lined up and I worked for like two days and then I flew home and then they did some reshoots back in Los Angeles. They had some specific things they wanted to do and they brought me in for one day and I shot and, it, you know, people think I'm, and I am, I am throughout the movie. Me and Alan Covert, our two characters show up throughout the movie and yet Friggin' it was, you know, when I flew down there, it was wild and woolly for a couple of days and I flew home. Mm. Yeah. And he's, uh, he, he doesn't look like he's aged a day in his life for a man in Hollywood, does he? Well, yeah, he has. If you look, yeah. of course he has. We all age. Uh, I don't know. He's a good dude. You know, I think he knows how to have fun. I think he knows moderation. I, n- I never saw him on the set be distracted. That's one thing that early on, remember, I was well into the business before there were cell phones and pagers and friggin' texting. And, you know, a lot of people now, a lot of stars, they're just stuck on this thing. They're just, you know, all day long. They're just, they're focused. The director will be doing a phone call over here. Oh yeah. Um, we're gonna, let's do that shot again. You know, that's no way to run a business. I never saw Adam on his cell phone. That doesn't mean he doesn't get on it from time to time, but it wasn't like he was stuck on it. You know, his focus was he understood leadership. Being the director of a movie is like being the coach of a basketball team. You got to have you got to understand what you're the, the what the goal that you're trying to to accomplish is. 
you know, and then you've got to do your homework, do your homework and, and figure out how best to make that plan happen. And then each and every day with your team of filmmakers, you make it happen. And it, listen, I don't care who you are making like Adam Sandler. It's not a one man show. He has a wonderful team of people around him that make him comfortable, that help him with the material, that create a good environment for him to be creative. You know, he doesn't, he never directs one of his movies. He always has a really capable guy that he trusts that the Frank Caracciolo, uh, oh man, I'm, I'm brain locking on his last name. He, he was the guy, Frank Caracci. He was the guy that directed Waterboy, directed a couple of his Sandler movies. Um, you know, it, it's just that everything would end up going through Adam, but good team guy. Yeah. Um, Austin Powers, of course, was another one that you were involved in several movies there. And that's kind of stood the test of time as well. What well, was that yeah. like? You got to take your hat off to Mike Myers. I mean, first yeah. of all, Wayne's world was really friggin' funny. And then he goes and just absolutely smashes it out of the park with these three Austin Powers movies. Two of them were absolutely brilliant. I thought the third one got a little silly. Um, and of course, you know, if it's not your cup of tea, you'll think both of the, all of them were silly. But yeah. I just thought, I thought Mike Myers, very inventive guy. And I'll let you in on a little tip, Maurice. I worked on those shows for a few hours each, each movie. I was only on the set of the first movie for two hours. I was only on the set of the second movie for two or three hours. I mean, it's just boom, boom, boom. They had it planned. They knew what they wanted. Jay Roach, the director, the fellow that Mike had had entrusted with sort of shaping the movie. Um, I think I think Mike, it's Mike is a little like Adam Sandler, where ultimately, even though there was a director, all things kind of went through um, Mike Myers. Although when I was working, when I worked on the all three of the Austin Powers movies. I did not see Mike Myers on the set the day that I worked. Okay. He was in costume. He was in wardrobe. He was, they were, he was spending three hours in a chair to look like fat bastard, you know, while they're, while, while they're putting him in the makeup chair for three or four hours to become fat bastard. The, the easiest thing in the world to do is go over to this one set and shoot Clint Howard. So I never saw him. I mean, I, I met Mike a time or two, but I've never, you know, we didn't, we didn't work together on that movie. Are you still making the snow globes? Um, yes. Yes, I am. And I'll tell you what. Um, yes, I, I, I slowed down a little bit, um, but I have a project now that I'm doing and with the help of some other pretty talented people and my wife, Kat, um, we are doing snow globes to commemorate our wedding celebration, which has now become an anniversary celebration. Uh, Kat and I got married in the middle of COVID. We got, I was, I fell in love with this woman and boy, oh boy, I was so smitten. And, and we were in the middle of COVID and I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel and Vegas opened up. And I said to, I said to Kat, I go, babe, I know this is not, you know, a dream of all women, but let's go to Vegas and get married. And we did. And we had a wonderful story. Our love story is filled with all sorts of crazy stuff. And, and uh, anyway, but one of the things that, that I sort of promised her is that when we do have this, a, a party to commemorate our 
wedding and our lives together that we're going to present, we're going to have it at, at the table settings. You know, there's going to be a snow globe. And we're going to put that snow globe down on these individual tables. There'll probably be 12 or 15 tables at this party. And we're going to watch the patrons fight over the snow globes because not everybody's going to get to go home with one. And they're going to be really cool. They're really cool. I, I took great pride in coming up with kind of fun ideas to make my one-off creative ones. And, you know, I, I did, I've done simple ones and then I've done ones of like, Randy Quaid jumping the reservation, flipping off the audience. You know, I, politically, it was probably not, you know. Are, these, are, are, are the globes going to be based on who's sitting at the tables or is that coming into your mind at all? Or are they just oh, no, no, no. It's just, it's us. It's yeah. us. It's, it's, it's my wife and I are, we, we, we actually are going to have a couple of different poses and just my sense of humor. And, and my wife shares this is there's going to be one pose where we are, we're doing some 3d modeling and we're going to be both our backs are going to be next to each other. And we're going to be like doing this. So when we put the, when we put the subject in the snow globe, it's going to look like that we're holding the snow globe up, you know? So that's just kind of our sense of humor. I did one, I did a snow globe where I had a snow globe inside of a snow globe. Um, <laughs> you know, I do some kooky stuff like that. I, I did one snow globe where these, these these homeless people were fighting. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, so anyway, I just come up with weird weird stuff, and and so the answer is these won't be weird. They will be a different. No, well, it's it's my it's my wife and I celebrating our our wedding. It, it's there, you know, but hopefully with a little bit of the old. I, I call myself when I put on my snow globe outfit. I'm the snow globist. The snow globist. I can talk as th in third person. The snow globist really likes things to be offbeat, because I am the snow globist. <laughs> uh, we're going to finish up now shortly, but I always ask ask this question to people: Is like, uh, do you have any memories of like a script that you ever got for a role, and you were like, "No way am I doing this," without mentioning what it is? Like, why why wouldn't you take a role if you got a script? What would put you off? Or you can give me an example of one that you may have got that you didn't like without mentioning. Well, listen, I, I learned a wonderful story from my dad, you know, as I became a teenager and into my early adulthood. And actually, the example was working on Evil Speak because Evil Speak had some questionable themes. I mean, a boy gets possessed by the devil and kills people. A boy gets possessed by the devil and cuts people's heads off, you know, conjuring up the devil. I mean, it's me, God. I mean, I'm not an overtly religious guy, but you don't have to be overtly religious to understand when you're messing with good and evil in a violent way, it, it, it's, it's something you should take pause in. Anyway, I, you know, I read the script, I auditioned, and I won the role. So I go to my dad and I said, Dad, I got kind of an issue here because, you know, it's, God, it's a great part. It's the lead of the movie, but yet, he does some really nasty stuff and the movie has some nasty themes to it. And dad, you know, he, he, he understood, he read the script and he agreed it was a good script. And, you know, he thought about it and he goes, you know, son, you know, if you don't do the job, somebody else will. It's not that you turning the job down is going to make them stop making this movie. So listen, it's, it's just a movie. It is just a movie for all people 
You know, the, we don't make snuff films. This is all just fantasy and entertainment. Some of it gets yeah. pretty rugged. You know, Rob Zombie gets pretty rugged. I'm not going to name a detail or I'm not going to name a specific thing, but Rob asked me to do a movie and I didn't, I read the script and I said, Rob, I'm, a, I'm pretty uncomfortable about doing this. This was nasty stuff. And he understood, you know, he since hired me. So it's not, he didn't hold it against me, but I, you know, it was just at that particular moment, I didn't really want to participate in, you know, just as it was nasty. I'm not sure which movie it was. And I would probably wouldn't say it if it was airs on a funny note here on, on, on getting a script or getting an offer and turning it down. And I was being a real little a-hole at the time when I did this, but I'd had some success in the business as an adult. And I got an offer to be one of Fred and Barney's bowling buddies in the Flintstones, the, the original movie that had John Goodman and Rick Moranis. And it was just, it was much like the cartoon where, you know, they'd go to the bowling alley and Fred and Barney yeah. would have his buddies. And there was like three or four guys that were going to be Fred and Barney's bowling buddies. And it was going to be a couple of weeks worth of work. The part wasn't all that great, but listen, it, to be in a good movie like that, funny movie, but for whatever reason at the time, Maurice, and I, you know, it baffles me now. Well, it doesn't quite baffle me, but it was stupid. I didn't want to wear those first skinned outfits that they were going to make these actors wear. I mean, and sure enough, if you go and see that original movie, I mean, these loincloth fur skin things that all the actors were going to wear, I just felt like it was silly and I didn't want to participate making me at that time a real little a-hole because I should have <laughs> taken the job. Yeah. Yeah. If you knew then what you know now, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't say you've got too many regrets in the business. Anyway, you've had a very storied career. No. Well, thank you. Yes, I know. I, you know, of course there are things, there are jobs I didn't get and, and situations where maybe if I would have done it a little different, things would be a little different. I mean, listen, everybody's got that. Everybody has those in life. But generally speaking, for a guy to say, I'm, I've got 60 some odd years in the entertainment business, you know, and I am where I am with a, you know, beautiful, I got a beautiful wife and we have a daughter, a 13 year old daughter and being a dad is, is a blast. I'm being a dad a little bit later in life, but it's, it's fun. I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to change much. I certainly wouldn't want to change any of that stuff. Yeah, excellent. For for people that might want to follow you on social media, I will put your links underneath. But just for the fans then, as we wrap up, have you got any projects coming up that you can talk about at the moment? Well, okay. I recently, this past year, I was in a movie with um, Nicolas Cage called The Old Way, which is a good example of me as a 60-year-old man being a character actor in a movie. And it's a fun Nick Cage Western. Um, there's a Nick Cage plays this gunslinger that kind of has to go and find his six shooter and start killing people again. And he has to bring his 12 year old daughter along with him. And that actress is Ryan Armstrong. And she's a very strong actress. And it was a good, good opportunity to participate in, in a movie, but also working on ice cream, man, for the people in the horror genre, look for that to come down the pipeline. And we, we certainly are going to use social media. We're going to certainly keep people abreast of our, of, of the comings and goings and, 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 you know, we try to try to bump the word up and get people excited about it using social media. You know, mostly we do Clint Howard official on Instagram. I have a Facebook page 
And, but in my wife and I really enjoy the Instagram and it's fun. And, and it's fun when we go to conventions, but people stop and th they want to talk about our adventures that they see on Instagram. It's as, as I, as I coined it a few years ago, it's like having everybody has their own newsletter. Everybody at the snap of a finger can, can print out their own newsletter. What's going on in the Howard household? What's going on in Clint Howard's world? And, and it's fun. You know, I personally don't like to get it too personal, you know, and I don't like to tell people yeah. what to do too often, you know, but mostly it's just, it gives me a chance to connect with fans and friends, you know? And so Facebook, I'm, I'm at Clint Howard and I'm sure there's some bogus Clint Howard's out there, which pisses us off. You know, I'll put the real really ones is. underneath. Oh man, the people that 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 try to be me on the internet, yeah, it's just shitty. It really it's mostly is. Mostly fucking just... scammers, scammers looking for money out of people. You yeah, know, that's the problem. Yeah, and my wife and I are always on the alert for that. You know, they people they want stuff. They want you know they want to talk to girls or something like, and you know, and that could end up you know coming back on me in a big way. Sure. So yeah. anyway. You know, but we are Clint Howard official. And I think that, I think if you go to that on Instagram and, and you'll see, you'll see my fingerprints all over it. Cause it's pretty funny stuff. And of course my wife, Kat, you know, she's got her attitude. It's, you know, we have, like I said, we have a really wonderful time. Yeah. Clint, uh, we might get in contact then again when ice cream man is about to come out and it was a pleasure to talk to you today, man. Absolutely loved it. Oh no! Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need that. We people need to buy ice cream in uh, in Ireland, right? Oh yes, we need yeah. to keep that train going. What's your favorite flavor of ice cream? I I'm yes. very plain, so I'm just going to say vanilla. Okay, well, you know what? The ice cream man will make you have a batch of vanilla. It'll be very tasty. It may have some bits in it, but it'll still be tasty. 